0: Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 35, it says then James and John, the sons of Zebedee came to him saying, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, (laughs) what do you want me to do for you? (laughs) They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed. Drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. The 10th chapter of Mark has been a series of requests. There was, in the beginning of Mark chapter 10, a request for an interpretation about marriage and divorce in verses 1 through 12. And then a request for blessing for children in verses 13 through 16. And then a request about salvation from a rich young ruler in verses 17 through 31. And now Jesus is presented with yet another request. This time, the request is for Glory and honor. It's really a request for a coronation. And remember that this request comes in the context of revelation and prophecy. Jesus has just revealed to the disciples that he will go to Jerusalem. That he will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. That he will be condemned to death. That he will be delivered to the Gentiles. That he will be mocked and spit upon and killed. And on the third day rise from the dead. You know, there's a right time and a wrong time to ask for favors. And typically when a person just announces to you that they're going to die and come back to life, that's probably not the best time to ask for a favor. The disciples, at least James and John, at this point do not understand that in order to obtain a crown of glory, that they're going to have to endure a cross of shame. We know that they don't understand what's going to happen to Jesus, and they certainly don't. Understand about the future and they certainly don't understand what it means to be great Thomas Carlyle wrote a great man shows his greatness By the way he treats little people In the Bible There's no such thing as little people In the Bible Jesus is great He becomes the very epitome of what constitutes Greatness but we can learn from Jesus of how he treats others. By the way, how do you define greatness? What's your definition? What does it take in your mind to be great? For at least James and John, greatness at this point still constitutes Position and power and for Jesus greatness is humility and holiness and now service and sacrifice. And in every passage we are faced with a challenge and we're given yet another challenge in this particular passage. It becomes a situation where we look at the passage and we begin to understand something that what we ask for often reveals the shallowness or the depths of our own spiritual condition and that becomes the very first big takeaway what is it that you want what is it that you think that you need what is it that you find yourself asking god for over and over again lord i want a job lord i want a husband lord i want a family lord i want a future what is it that you're asking for what is it that you think is important to you What has the gospel made of you? What has coming to Christ made of you? How has it changed your mind or your heart or even your requests? And so, once again, we're faced with a choice. Do we serve ourself? Do we serve our self-interest? Do we serve our self-advantages? Do we serve self-fulfillment? And there are those that will tell you that everyone is motivated by something. And in the world in which we live, position and power are often our drug of choice, personal advancement, the path of choice. But will we follow Jesus? Will we take up our cross? Will our master provide our example? Will we serve others? Will we long for holiness and humility? Will we desire to serve and sacrifice? Will we allow God's Holy Spirit to cultivate the character of Jesus in our heart and in our lives and in our thinking and in our marriages and in our families and on the journey? And again, there's a clue. What have you asked for in the past? What are you asking for even now? What are you expecting in the future? And so in this passage, it begins with the brother's request. Look at verse thirty five. Then James and John, we know that they're the sons of Zebedee earlier in the New Testament. They're called the sons of thunder. And we know from the New Testament later that John is going to be capable of great compassion and great sensitivity. These are brothers who are passionate brothers. They came to him saying, Rabbi, we want you to do for us. Whatever we ask, we know from Matthew's gospel that their mom is included in the deal that mother goes and asks Jesus about her sons. And by the way, when someone says. I want you to do whatever I tell you to do. Does that send up a little red flag to you? You know, on Father's Day, I think about those moments in life growing up with my kids. For those of you who are fathers or mothers or grandparents, for that matter, did you ever have a child come to you and say, Dad, I'm not even going to ask you because I know what the answer is going to be. It's going to be no. Usually when they start the conversation that way, the answer is going to be no. (laughs) Ha ha. The fact that James and John and their mother make a request for Jesus for a blank check strongly suggests that their question isn't a legitimate question. And this is perhaps an early example of the disciples going astray, going down a road that for some has been called the prosperity gospel. James and John are trying to write their own ticket with Jesus They're saying, look, whatever we ask you to do, we want you to do it. Name it, claim it. That's what faith's about. You can have what you want if you have no doubt. So make out your wish list and keep on believing and find yourself perpetually receiving or not. Because we begin to discover something, it is absolutely normal for people to want health and want wealth and want prosperity. But Jesus is asking us to redirect our feelings and our fixation and what it is that we truly value. You can almost hear the smile in verse 36 when it says, and he said to them, 'Uh, what do you want me to do for you? Have you ever prayed to God and hoped that he said, hey, what do you want me to do for you? Oh, good. We're on the right track. Verse 37, they said to him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. By the way, the right hand was the place of dignity. It was the place of honor. It was the place of power in the ancient world. And the left hand was a place of proximity, if you will, to the ruler and the right hand honor. As a matter of fact, even today, if you watch a press release or if you watch a president or if you watch a senator or if you watch a movie star and they're on the camera, usually there's someone on the right or there's someone on the left. And your fame is some, sometimes an attachment fame, so to speak. That there's a certain honor and power and glory if you can get close to someone who has honor and power and glory. Now think about this. James and John, despite spending time with Jesus, despite his teaching, despite his miracle, despite his example. They still ask this question. They're still defining power and position in terms of status and the ability to control others. And we live in a world where power strives to control and then impose its will on others. There was a Roman emperor named Galba some 20 or 30 years after Jesus makes this statement. He assumes the the role of the emperor and his first statement out of his mouth is, Now that I'm the emperor, I can do whatever I want to whomever I want. You don't have to be the emperor of the world to make that statement. All you have to do is turn 18. I'm 18 years old. I can do whatever I want now. I'm a grown up. I'm 18. I can eat ice cream at midnight. And nobody can tell me no. I can eat ice cream at 21, at 31, at 41. When you get to be 51, you're going, What was I thinking? By the way, just because you can do whatever you want, is that a good reason to do whatever you want? One says yes. One person says yeah. But most of you who have had to make choices over a long period of time realize that the answer is no. Selfishness and self-seeking are the traits that we're all guilty of. And if we're honest, at one time or another, we've heard the question raised. Can you do whatever you want? And some of you made the answer, why, yes. Why, yes, I can do whatever I want. I, I heard on the radio about a man who is a pastor and a preacher and a pawn shop owner. And he said, hey, we're having a great sale. If you buy a ring from me, I'll throw in the wedding for free. It's crazy what people will do. In our culture, pride and self-esteem have come to be refined and defined not as sin, but virtue. And not just any virtue, but the supreme virtue. We've come to a place where we actually applaud selfishness. John MacArthur writes, quote, the promotion of self-esteem and self-fulfillment and self-glory has become a major industry that ranges from exercise programs to motivation for executive success. And tragically, the cult of selfism has found its way into evangelical Christianity. Books and seminars and conferences and magazines and organizations that promote self under the guise of personal spiritual development abound. And the movement has found resistance in the church, which often seems determined to beat the world at its own fleshly game from countless sources. Claims are heard that God's great design for his people is health and prosperity and success and happiness and self-fulfillment. And the Bible's teaching of suffering and cross bearing for Christ's sake are ignored. Or foolishly explained away. And the church is strong spiritually. When it distrusts its own wisdom. And its own strength. Because the scriptures remain clear and consistent. The problem isn't that you don't love yourself enough. The problem is you love yourself too much. The problem is pride and disobedience. And remember what pride ultimately is. It's you waking up one morning. Thinking I don't need God and I don't need what God has to offer. I'm good. I have my youth, I have my health, I have this, I have that. I have the expectation that everything is looking good and everything's looking fine. Pride caused Adam and Eve to doubt God and believe Satan and rely on their own judgment. And it's been downhill ever since. And by the way, if you have a theology that exalts pride, that causes you to doubt God and believe Satan and rely on your own judgment, then the chances are you're going down. Hell. Do you want to be able to reverse the trend? <laughs> Admit dependence and say, Lord, what I really need is you. You know, there are warnings that are given in the book of Proverbs in Proverbs chapter 16, verse five. It says a proud heart. The lamp of the wicked is sin." And in Proverbs 16, 5, it says, everyone who is proud and hard is an abomination to the Lord. We are in danger when we adopt the goals and the ambitions of this world to serve our ever increasing lust for position and power. And so in verse 38, does it shock you or surprise you when Jesus says. I know we began our conversation with you saying, give me whatever I want. And me saying, well, what is it that you think that you want? And them saying, we want a position of honor and glory. And then in verse 38, Jesus saying, you don't know what you're asking for. Because the request hinges on one little word. Let me sit on your right hand and your left hand in glory. But it never occurred to them That a cross precedes a crown. By the way. Is it glorious. To be executed. Not in the world in which we live in. But Jesus says you don't know what you're asking. And sometimes we don't know what we're asking. Have you ever prayed that prayer. Lord I don't even know what to ask. I don't even know what to say. Lord, I have absolutely no idea how to proceed with our conversation, but Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? What is that cup? Do you think it's a a Starbucks cup with a nice holder on it? There is a sense in which every cup that we drink becomes a type and a picture of our life and our circumstances. And here the cup is submission to the father's will. So when Jesus says, do you know what you're asking for? Are you able to drink the cup that I'm drinking? The cup that he is drinking is the beverage that has been handed to him by the father, which constitutes the father's plan and purpose for his life. And what is the baptism that Jesus is making reference to? Do you think it's water baptism? No, because he's already been baptized in John's baptism. Is he talking about some sort of future Christian baptism? No, he's talking about a baptism of suffering that's going to take place as the prophecy is fulfilled, as he is betrayed, as he is incarcerated, and as he is killed. That's what he's talking about. It's the suffering before the cross and after the cross. And what are some of the moments of greatest triumph of Jesus? It is going to be hanging on that cross. And imagine they get a picture just for a moment of Jesus on the cross. And there's a thief on the left side. And there is a thief on the right side. And Jesus says, Oh, I'm going to reserve that place for you, James. And I'm going to reserve that place for you, John. We withdraw our request. Well, we want what you want, Jesus. Are you willing to go where Jesus goes? Are you willing to serve where Jesus serves? Are you willing to love what Jesus loves? I'm going to even suggest to you that it might be that coming event that prompts Jesus's question. Are you able to drink the cup That I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. A lot of people will come to me and they'll say, I want to do what you do. Really? Seriously? Are you sure you know what you're asking for? I can remember looking at times in ministry and some of my friends who have well known and. Well established ministries and I think wow wouldn't it be great to be on TV or wouldn't it be great to do this or wouldn't it be great to do that and I think. Of some of the pain and the suffering that's been experienced by some of the pastors as they find their children in car accidents or they suffer cancer or some other setback. And they don't, we don't always understand that the road marked with suffering and that there's pain in the offering and that in order to do what God wants you to do, you have to be willing to walk away from all of this other stuff. Real honor for the servant and the son of man will include submission to the father's perfect will. And look at their answer in verse thirty nine. They said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them. You want the good news or the bad news? No, he didn't say that. Look what it says. You will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. Do you know what he's making reference to? It's the fact that James and John will suffer martyrdom and exile. As a matter of fact, James will be the first to die and John will be the last to die. James will be called to die for Jesus and John will be called to live for Jesus. James in Acts chapter 12 verse 2 is going to experience a situation where both he and Peter are thrown into prison. Peter will be miraculously freed by an angel and James will be taken and he will be killed. John will experience... Exile, trial, persecution. He will be boiled in oil and banished to the island of Patmos in that order. Because he'll miraculously survive the the boiling in oil. As a matter of fact, when... Vespasian's son, Titus, who built the Roman Colosseum, dies. Domitian assumes the throne and John is in Ephesus. And for preaching the gospel, Domitian orders a cauldron filled with a vat of burning fat. And John, the apostle, is thrown into it and he is miraculously delivered. He'll go to the island of of Patmos where he'll write the book of of, of Revelation. Why does God take one and spare the other? But the cross will become a stumbling block for those who seek to elevate and honor themselves. Real honor for the Son of God. A man and the servant of God involves submission to his father's perfect will, and what Jesus is in effect saying to both James and John is, "You want the Father's will? You're going to get it." I think it was uh, A. W. Tozier, who said. The cross of popular evangelicalism is not the cross of the New Testament. It's a rather bright ornament upon the bosom of the self-assured and the carnal Christian whose hands are indeed the hands of Abel, but whose voice is the voice of Cain. The old cross slew men. The new cross entertains them. The old cross condemns. The new cross assures. The old cross destroyed confidence in the flesh. The new cross encourages it. The old cross brought tears and Blood And the new cross brings laughter. The flesh, smiling and confident, preaches and sings about the cross. And before that cross, it bows. And toward that cross, it points with carefully staged histrionics. But upon that cross, it will not die. And the reproach of that cross, it stubbornly refuses to bear. But in order to obey God, in order to submit to God, the Lord invites you to say, I need you to think about all that this means and all that this entails and the direction that it will cause you to go. Robert Raines wrote this insightful statement. He said, I'm like James and John. Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me, how, can, how they can further my program or feed my ego or satisfy my need or give me strategic advantage. I exploit people ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favor, your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank. Check for whatever I want. I'm like James and John, unquote. And if we're honest, so am I. I won't speak for you. You can speak for yourself. What is your heart saying? It's pounding. What's it saying to you? How is it evaluating you? How is it evaluating your circumstances and your request and your condition? Because the, the evaluation can end rather quickly. The moment that you actually sing the song or pray the prayer and really mean it, where you go, I'll go. And where you stay, I'll stay. And where you serve, I'll serve. And I will follow you. I will resign myself to be exactly what you want me to be. And look at the father's restriction in verse 40. It says, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it is prepared. Isn't that an interesting statement? Particularly in light of all honor and glory and authority has been given to Jesus. All judgment is given to Jesus, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. Why would he say such a thing? Unless it's true. Unless it's true that the position of authority, that the position of glory, that the position of honor has already been determined by the father. By the way, how are positions in the kingdom of God determined? Do you remember when you were a kid and you were in kindergarten? Or maybe the first grade or unless, of course, you were homeschooled and your mom said, line up, get in line. Who's at the first of the line? Who's in the middle of the line? Who's at the back of the line? How do you choose? How do you get into a position? How is the position determined? Is it arbitrary? Hardly. And according to Jesus, look what it says. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it is prepared. And I'm going to suggest to you that each and every one of us has been assigned a position by the father in the kingdom. It seems to me that the better question is. What's my position? What is the position that the father has prepared for me? What is the position that the father has prepared for you? And by the way, again, we are invited to entertain the notion that the position in the kingdom involves rewards, but also those rewards are determined by our faithfulness to the father and the son. But entrance into the kingdom is not that at all. Entrance into the kingdom is always by grace through faith. Who is allowed into the kingdom? It's everyone who will turn from darkness to the light. It's everyone who will turn from their sin to the Savior. It's everyone who will by grace through faith embrace the promise that God has given in the person of Jesus that you can be saved. There's nothing you can do and there's no position that you can have that's going to merit entrance into the kingdom. But what you do once you get there has been established by the Father. And if our role in that kingdom is tied to obedience and faithfulness, if it's tied to holiness and humility, and if it's tied to selflessness and sacrifice... then you will get exactly what you bargained for. Because if humility and holiness isn't a part of your life, and if selflessness and sacrifice isn't a part of your life, then guess what? The measure of a believer's suffering and sacrifice might have something to do with the extent of reward and honor. And Jesus peels away a picture frame. And invites us to take a hint and a peek of what honor and reward will be like in heaven. (laughs) And look at the apostles resentment in verse 41. And when the 10 heard it, they applauded because they thought James and John would be the perfect choice to sit at the left and the right hand side. But wait, wait, that's not what the text says. It says exactly what happens in your life. What happens in your life when you push and shove to the front and you go, excuse me, excuse me, I'm in charge here. And everybody around you goes, who made you in charge? How did you get that job? Self-promotion, selfishness, and exaltation. How is that working out at your job, in your home, and in your family? How do you like the person who's the king or the queen? But they're self-described kings and queens. And when the ten heard it, look what it says. They began to be greatly displeased. I don't think I have to tell you what the Greek says in this particular passage, do I? Do you think greatly displeased means highly honored or completely happy? They're angry. They're angry with the power play. They're angry that James and John have pushed their way to the front of the line. But their response reveals something about their spiritual condition as well. And so when people are selfish and self-promoting... And we begin to look in our own heart and we begin to look at our own circumstances and we begin to look at our own response, just like asking the question, Lord, what will you give me? Asking the question and hearing it from somebody else also says something about ourselves. It gives us a clue into our spiritual health. We must not accept the path to greatness as defined by this world. And Jesus is going to have to deal with the situation. I want you to think about this just for a moment. Jesus is going to entrust to these men the future ministry. How would they be able to provide peace to a troubled world? And how are they going to be able to communicate the gospel if if they can't live it among themselves? How are they going to talk about peace when they don't even possess it themselves? same is true for us, isn't it? How can we tell our children about Jesus and how can we talk about peace and how can we talk about joy and how can we talk about selflessness and servanthood? And how can we talk about those kinds of things if we're not prepared to live it in our own life and do it in our own ministry? Jesus is about to engage in something, and in order to deal with the restriction and the resentment, he's going to have to do something. He has to to help the disciples leave their delusion. He has to turn a dangerous situation. And how is he going to help them with their delusion and the dangerous situation? He's going to turn it into a teaching moment. Jesus called them to himself. And said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Here in verse 32, Jesus gives a description. Rulers. Great ones. The word ruler, by the way, in this particular instance means those who Rule by power in the in the in the original language it even carries it with it with, with it the idea of ruling down in the ancient world of Israel and Rome and Greece. And in these local municipalities, you had dictators who were vain and cruel and exploitive. And even as you look out into the world right at this very moment and the slaughter that's been taking place in Syria, as the president just simply says, I'm going to do whatever I want and I'm going to kill whoever I want because I'm going to retain power. And I don't care how many people have to die in order for me to remain the ruler of this country. He's a he's a dictator. And the reason why it's so upsetting to you is because you live in a world where you bought into the, the statement that this is a government by the people and for the people. You, like me, probably grew up in a world that you said, hey, wait a minute, this is a representative democracy. And I thought our government existed for us, not that we exist for it. And so guess what? We understand that in the world in which Jesus is speaking and in the world in which they're talking, great ones and rulers were those who had this philosophy of dominance. And great ones were those who used flattery and charm and attractiveness to manipulate people in order to get their own ends. And the phrase exercise authority over could be translated Play the tyrant or play the dictator in the New American Standard, in the RSV, in the NIV, it translates this rightly, lord it over them. Well, the person who's in charge gets to tell everybody what to do. And the church isn't exempt from attracting leaders who are self-seeking and self-serving and self-promoting. And what is it? What is it about these leaders that so fascinate people in the church? I think it's because of the same reason in our government and in our culture and our, our society. We're willing to follow people who will give us stuff. We live in an entitlement world. Well, I'll follow the person who gives me whatever I want, whenever I want and however I want it. But that's not the world that Jesus is talking about. And that's not the leadership that Jesus is talking about. And that's not greatness as it's defined by Jesus, by telling people what they want to hear or taking advantage of the immature and the foolish, the carnal, the gullible, the undiscerning. Imagine a person gets behind a pulpit and says, you can have whatever you want. Without a cross, without sacrifice, without suffering, without selflessness. And there are people who go, oh, I love that message. But look what Jesus says in verse 43, yet it shall not be so among you. Would to God that that were true, yet it shall not be so among you. There's a certain way that the world does leadership and service and greatness, and there's a way that the church does it. And the way that the church does it is is not that way. He says, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. Jesus doesn't condemn Ambition, what he condemns is the kind of ambition that results in you getting everything and them getting nothing. Jesus turns the world's greatness upside down. The self-serving, self-promoting methods are the exact opposite. In the world, power is like a pyramid. Prestige and power are built on the bodies that lie beneath you. But Linsky writes, God's great men are not sitting on top of lesser men, but bearing lesser men on their backs. The real leader... Is the one at the bottom of the pile. The real leader. Is the person who's making the selfless sacrifice. In order for you to get what you need. And so we applaud our moms and our dads. Many of you had a wonderful example of a mother and a father. Who in the most selfless way. Gave up so much so that you could have so much. Maybe you didn't have that kind of a mother or that kind of a father, but guess what? That's the kind of mother and father that God wants you to be. Jesus turns the principle upside down. By the way, the word servant, he's talking about a willing servant. You see, in this particular context, it isn't a person who has no choice. This is a person who has a choice. This is a person who is faithful and obedient and humble and selfless. And the hallmark or the, the sure sign is, is, is a willing sacrifice on this, for the sake of others in the name of Jesus. And I want you to think about that just for a moment. Because an unwilling sacrifice that's for the sake of others that's not in the name of Jesus is not the kind of service that he's talking about. In other words, if your service is because I have to instead of because I want to. Then the truth is you're missing out on the meaning of the text. And the word servant is the Greek word diakonos. We get the word deacon from it, and it means exactly what you think it means. This is the person who does the menial labor, the house cleaning, the serving the tables. In other words, the diakonos was the person who goes, I'll fix the light bubble, I'll, I'll, I'll vacuum the carpet, I'll clean the toilets, I'll do this, I'll do, I'll cook the food, I'll serve the food, I'll clean the kitchen. In ancient culture, the diakonos wasn't a dishonorable designation because a servant required training and a certain level of skill. And in that culture and society, the mechanism of service was also a way for you to provide for your family. And look what Jesus says in verse 44, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be the slave of all. The chapter began with a paradox. Do you remember in the opening chapter? Two will become one in verses 1 through 12. Grown-ups will become like children in verses 13 through 16. The first are last in verses 17 through 31. And now servants and slaves are rulers. In verse 43 and verse 44. And the slave, by the way, is a different word. And whoever of you desires to be first... Shall be slave of all. The word slave, do loss. It comes from deo, which means to bind, hence a person who was bound in their service, a bond servant or a slave. And this was lower and even more demeaning. A servant was his own person, but a slave was the property of his or her master. And Jesus is in effect saying, if you're a Christian, look at the text itself. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave. Read the text shall be slave of God not what the text says slave of Jesus. That's not what the text says. Read the text. If you want to be first, you shall be the slave of all in the context. What do you suppose this means? This means if you are a Christian. (laughs) If you want to be first. You voluntarily agree. To be the slave of everyone. To the young. To the old. To the single. To the married. To the rich. To the poor. To the needy. To those who aren't so needy. You voluntarily assume the position that everyone owns you. Have you you ever said, you're not my boss? You're not my boss. You can't tell me what to do. You're exactly right. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. But you clearly don't desire to be first and you don't desire to be second. You don't even desire to be third. You will get what you desire. Paul referred to himself as do loss. A slave by choice to everyone. He was God's property. He had no rights or privileges other than the rights and the privileges bestowed upon him by his Savior. And so his immediate recognition is Whatever rights I have, you impart the right to me to eat or not eat, to refrain or to refrain from doing. In other words, from his particular perspective, he understood that the Christian who desires to be first and great must be willing to work in the hard place and in the uncomfortable place and the lonely place, the demanding place, and even the place of unappreciation. Maybe. Isolation. Maybe persecution, maybe incarceration. Can you work in an excellent way without being proud? Withstand criticism without bitterness. Be misjudged by others without becoming defensive. Withstand suffering without giving in to self-pity. John MacArthur writes, quote, when faithful believers have done everything they can for the Lord to the limit of their abilities and energies, they can say, quote, we are unworthy slaves. We've only done that which we ought to have done. And look what it says in verse forty five for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Do you realize that every single verse in the Gospel of Mark can be read in light of this verse? This is the key verse. If I were to take one verse in all of the Gospel of Mark and say this one verse represents the whole book, this is the verse. For and even that word, it might seem like such a small world word. It's the Greek word anti. It has the common meaning instead of instead of even the son of man did not come to be served. In other words, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the person who is both God and man, completely God and completely man who deserves to be worshiped, who deserves to be adored, who deserves to be obeyed, doesn't come to be worshiped and obeyed and and adored he comes to serve as a matter of fact if you take this Warren Wearsby believed we believe this verse contains the key to the whole book christ came that's chapter one ministered that's chapters two through 13 his life a ransom that's chapters 14 through 16 william arthur ward writes the truly great Are the most grateful, the most inspiring or the most inspired, the most convincing are the most convinced, the most pleasing are the most pleasant, unquote. And here's what I would say. Guess what? And the greatest servant is the one who serves the most, who is the most selfless, who is the most sacrificial. And Jesus, once again. Practices. What he preaches. And don't let that word ransom. Pass you by. To give his life a ransom. For many. Most of you know what that word means. It means to buy back. It means something or someone has been taken captive. And it has to be purchased back. One Bible writer says the ransom metaphor pictures those whom Jesus came to purchase as helpless slaves chained in the marketplace, standing on the auction block with no hope of freedom. Imagine it. There you are. The slave on the block, about to be sold into who knows what kind of slavery. You look up, and there stands Jesus giving himself for you, standing in your chains, shedding his blood, buying your freedom. You're free to go, you hear the auctioneer say. You are free. The price? The precious blood of Jesus, the priceless perfection of his obedience and life and death, the precious. Treasury of his merit on the cross, this is the payment to buy freedom for the entire world, unquote. And by the way, the focus isn't on who's getting paid. The focus is on the payment. Someone might say, well, who is getting paid? Well, clearly the answer is God, Christ, it says, gave himself without blemish to God in Hebrews nine fourteen. gave himself up for an offering to God. It says in Ephesians 5 2. the whole need for a substitute to die on behalf is because we've sinned against God. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And so now all of a sudden you understand what Paul means when he writes in Romans chapter eight, verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, you've been purchased, you've been bought. The ransom price of this release is Jesus, and it's not just his life that saves you. It's his death and his resurrection, and the price isn't coerced from Jesus. It isn't where Jesus goes, oh, father, I'll hold my nose and I'll do it. Look what the text says. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. He's the giver. You're the receiver. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. The offers for everyone and anyone. Yet not everyone will be ransomed from the wrath of God. For reasons that I can't comprehend, there are those people who will say, I don't need your service. I don't need your love. I don't need your grace. I don't need your forgiveness. I don't need the hope that you've supplied. But Jesus will do it anyway. Max Lucato, in his book, Angels Silent, makes these comments on his service and sacrifice. He says, quote, he is the general who takes responsibility for the soldier's mistakes. He doesn't just assume blame. He seizes the sin. He becomes the ransom. He's the general who dies in place of the private, the king who suffers for the peasant, the master who sacrifices himself for the servant. He writes, as a young boy, I read a Russian fable about a master and a servant who went on a journey to a city. And many of the details I've forgotten. But the ending I remember before the two men could reach the destination, they were caught in this blinding blizzard. They lost their direction. They were unable to find the city before nightfall. And the next morning, concerned friends went searching for the two men. They finally found the master. Face down. Frozen to death in the snow. And they reached down. And they plied his rigid body and they lifted him from the snow and underneath they found the servant. Cold. But alive. He survived. And told how the master had voluntarily placed himself on top of the servant so that the servant could live that's exactly what jesus does for you he says i'll die so that you won't have to and in my dying i will give you life and in my selflessness you get to have in taking it away from him it's given all to you now think about this for just a moment because we've come full circle Remember how we began our study? What you ask for becomes an indication of just how shallow or just how deep your spiritual condition is. So what is it that you really want from God? Really? What do you want You might say piously, I want to know his will, but I'm going to suggest to you, you already know his will. To turn from your sin and turn to the Savior and receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. To walk away from the darkness and into the light. It's to... Submit to God, resist the devil. He will flee. It's obey what he's asked you to do to love each other and to love your neighbor as yourself, to love the Lord. If you do all of those things, you'll never ever have to worry about what God's will is. Your prayer will not change. Not to, Lord, what is your will? Your your prayer will change to, Lord, now that I know your will, will you give me the strength and the courage to do what you've asked me to do? My pastor used to say that the will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. F.B. Meyer used to say, if you are not willing to be used by God, ask God to make you willing to be willing What will you really ask for? What is it that you really want? Because guess what? It's about to be given to you. Do you want to be left alone? Do you want to be ignored? Do you want to be forgotten? Do you want the freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want? Guess what? Your dreams might be coming true. But if you want holiness and humility and selflessness and sacrifice. And guess what? The journey continues in the gospel of Mark. Hold on for dear life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. Heavenly Father, I pray that once again you will awaken within us the desire to know you and love you and serve you and follow you. Lord, we sing the song. Where you go, I'll go. Where you serve, I'll serve. Whom you love, I'll love. And Lord, we will sing it and mean it, or we won't. But Lord, I pray that you'd give us the courage to swallow hard and take a deep breath and ask that we could be men and women who really, really, really will live out what Jesus is asking us to live out with strength and courage. And Lord, I pray for that person who so much wants to follow you. Lord, I pray that that's exactly what they'll do. They'll walk away from sin. They'll walk away from darkness. They'll walk into light. They'll walk into love. They'll walk into confidence that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And will do exactly what he says he'll do. Forgive, restore, reconcile. In Jesus name. Amen. Let's